Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and we're talking about one of our favorite subjects. We're talking about real estate. And we've got a real treat for you today because we're talking bi-coastal real estate. We're talking about real estate with affluent people. We're talking about real estate with some people who are a little quirky. And there's nobody better to discuss these topics with than Rhonda Cohn. Rhonda is a realtor in L.A. and in Miami, which makes her uniquely qualified to talk about interesting, eccentric, and demanding clientele. She's the expert. She's the pro at working with them. So please join me in welcoming Rhonda to the Inside BS Show. Rhonda, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dave. And it's a pleasure to be on the show and always great to see you, the godfather of growth. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. You're very kind. Rhonda, I want to hear first about how you got into real estate. Then I want to hear about how the whole bi-coastal thing happened. So tell us, give us your background, give us your story. How did you get into real estate in the first place? I actually got into real estate because at the time, my I was looking to make a transition in my career. And my ex-husband at the time uh, was is a mortgage banker. And he said, gee, why don't you get your real estate license? So I did. And I never looked back. I mean, it was really that simple. Yeah. Was that in L.A. or was that here in Miami? That was in L.A. That was in L.A. Yeah. So I'm a California native. Got my license 25 years ago. So 25 years in this crazy business in California. And then three years ago, when my son got a full ride to UM Law, I followed him out to Miami and became vice coastal, got my license, and the rest is history. Yeah. Okay. So compare and contrast. How How is real estate, the actual products that you're working with, how is it different in LA compared to Miami? It's really not because for me, no transaction is too small or too big. So you might find me anywhere in the $200,000 condo space, which you're not going to find in California, but you will find in Miami. Um, in fact, in the mid threes, you can probably even get one that has an ocean view. It's not going to be a big place, but it exists. Or you can find me in the multi-million coastal on the water space in Florida. So, you know, again, I have such a wide variety of clientele from the first timers to the PETA terror buyers to a lot of foreign buyers coming into Miami and wanting a piece of, you know, the great life there. Yeah. All right. So talk a little bit about how you how you keep up and how you keep your pipeline full uh, with both listings and then, you know, finding people who are looking when you're in two different places. What do you do? Because I, I know a lot of people who pull their hair out because they're in one place and they can't keep their pipeline full. How do you do it with two different markets? It's It, it can be a challenge, no doubt. Um, there isn't any magic sauce to it. It's something that I've continuously had to work at throughout my career. I would say it's, you know, being in networking organizations, um, such as you and I know, it's working our network, constantly being out there, meeting people, wearing my name badge, even at the grocery store, the car wash, having a lot of conversations, talking to people, and then working my sphere of influence and reminding them, getting in front of them with you know multiple touches, whether that be 
a phone call, gee, how are you, what's new, or a letter that gets out a monthly, or a newsletter that gets emailed to them. Um, I try to stick to two or three things and be really consistently consistent. Um, I love that phrase, with those things, rather than tapping into, you know, a million things um, and not being very consistent or good at any of those. Yeah, I would say teamwork also makes the dream work. I've got to have, you know, people on the ground in both states so that if I'm in L.A. and have something going on uh, in Miami, I've got somebody that can show a property for me, sit in open house, those kinds of things. I couldn't do it as a one-man show 24-7. Yeah. Is there is there ever any crossover? Do you ever get any L.A. clients who say, you know, I would love to have a second home in Miami or any Miami clients who say, you know, I've got business in L.A. It would be nice to have a Pierre de in in L.A. Is there ever any crossover in the clientele? It's fairly uncommon to have anybody from Miami that wants to have a second property in California. Because as we know, everybody's leaving California, but yeah. uh, <laughs> the prices are very high. Yeah, amongst other things. But for California people, definitely. Um, I've had some crossover. In fact, I recently had somebody who he himself was also bi-coastal and bought a place in Miami sight unseen just because he had a business in Miami, has a business, and you know needed some place to stay besides a hotel. So yes, most definitely. You know, Rhonda, I got an idea for you. If you can find, if you can carve out like an extra week a month and be in New York, you could probably <laughs> corner the market of people with second homes in Florida because there are there is no shortage of New Yorkers who have a second home in Florida. That's how I moved to Florida back in 2007. My wife and I had a second home. The market was so hot, we decided to rent it out, and we were getting great money for the rent. And then our tenant moved out during the winter, and my wife and I spent a couple of weekends in the apartment during the winter because we were renting it fully furnished. And my wife was like, why Why don't we just stay here? <laughs> and that's how I wound up in Miami. So all you need to do is find an extra week a month and be up in New York, and you can grab New Yorkers and move them to Miami and grab people from L.A. and move them to Miami, and, and all, would be, all would be right with the world. How does the how – does, how do the current economic conditions – impact real estate in each location is it different because we were we were talking before we started the show and you're working on a deal now which is a which is a cash deal which is everybody's dream right because there's no financing complications it can close quickly how does the the current situation with interest rates going up how does it impact real estate for you and is it different in LA compared to uh, South Florida it is definitely different in L.A. versus South Florida. I find that in South Florida, you have many more people that have cash, especially, you know, people coming in from South America, people coming in from the East Coast, New York, New Jersey. Those people are coming in with cash. So properties don't necessarily need to appraise because they often don't care. Sometimes they're buying it to just flip it into a rental with no rent cap. You know, it's a dream for them. I think you have a little bit more inventory in Miami than California does, but I see your prices adjusting. I see the activity level is down a bit. 
in Los Angeles, activity, unless you're a cash buyer, we have very, very low inventory, but we've been low for the last mm, three plus years, mm. now even more so. So anything decent that comes on the market here, if it's in the right school district, the right neighborhood, we're still going to get multiple offers. We may get two instead of 12. You know, that's really the only difference. But there's definitely been a shift because those buyers who are sensitive to interest rate payments, in other words, if, you know, I as a buyer can only afford X per month and that interest rate hike takes me above and beyond that X per month, then I can't buy anymore. My buying power has gone down by 40% easily. So that's a challenge unless you're a cash buyer. Yeah, you know, I I was just in LA a couple of weeks ago, and I was in the um, I was I was right around Brentwood, just uh, a little bit south of like Sherman Oaks, yes. and I I visited a couple of friends, and they're they have beautiful homes, multi million dollar homes on like a you know the side of a mountain, gorgeous pool, you know, four or five bedrooms. But right next to the 405, you go outside the house and you hear highway noise. Mm -hmm. And this is like – and we're talking like a $5 million home. Like here, a home that's that close to a highway, it ain't going for five million bucks. I guess it's because of the, you know, of the where the real estate is, the proximity, the neighborhood, the whole bit. How how do you manage – expectations of people specifically going to LA from someplace else where look you're going to pay a lot more and you're going to get a lot less compared to Indiana or even Miami right how do you handle that do people get like are they like just in shock when they see how you know how expensive everything is for the value that they're getting because it's obviously all about location right it is and yes They're in absolute shock because when I, you know, having grown up in California, look at some of these neighborhoods that I, when I got in the business were, you know, let's say two, $300,000 neighborhoods, and now they're over a million. And I think to myself, you've got to be kidding. Like who would pay a million dollars to live in this crap neighborhood? But guess what? That's what the going (laughs) price is. And people are paying it because that's what they can afford. Right? So That's where they're living instead of at the ocean. Um, Yeah. So I think the buyers in many respects are sort of determining what the prices will be because you're either going to get activity on a property, it's priced right or not, um, or you're not going to get the activity. And, you know, so that demand and how buyers view the value of a home, not the appraised value, but just, you know, how do I feel about walking in this house? Do I see this as a million dollar home or not? You know, they're helping to drive our price point for sure. You know, I so I've uh, I've been an adult for a long time now, and that's when I <laughs> that's when I first started looking at and thinking about real estate. And you know, for me to to think about real estate, I think about for for something that I'm going to live in. I just think about how I feel in it, and I'm not you know I'm not overly concerned as long as it's within my price range. I'm not overly concerned with the price range as long as I feel good about where I am. I feel good about you know my family being here. You know the way real estate works is you hold it long enough, it's going to be fine, mm-hmm. right? So when i when when I go to a place like l a I wonder to myself particularly you know because of because of the onerous nature of uh of the way everything is done in California, 
you know, do people do people just look at how they feel in the home or do they take into account how difficult it is sometimes to do business in California and how complicated it is in certain jurisdictions to get permitting to move like a fence three feet, uh, you know, because here there's no rules. I mean, you can in Miami, you in Florida, you can pretty much do anything you want anywhere, anytime. In California, you've got to ask permission to move a fence like six inches onto, you know, onto what would be a, a city easement. Right. Yeah. So do people do people resist buying because of those things or is it just one that one of those things that the media tends to hype up and you know buying a home is always going to be look i'm comfortable in it i feel good about it this is where i want to live yeah i think unless they have a specific use that they're looking to gain from that particular home you know in some cases i've had people that want to be in a particular school district so they'll look at a home and they'll say you know this is a great house but we need to put a second story on that what's involved so at that Point, I typically will have them touch base with an architect to see exactly in that particular city with building and safety what is going to be involved. How much height and width can you put? What are the parking requirements? What are the setback requirements? And so those people, because they want a specific usage for that home, are looking at those things during the due diligence inspection contingency. But for the most part, unless somebody knows that's what they want to do, they're not going to go through that, you know due diligence process on the fencing and so forth. Um, If there's a concern about an easement, you know, they might do a survey or something like that. Gee, is my neighbor's gate, you know, on two feet of my property or not? Sometimes people will go that route. It's costly, but, you know, on the higher end real estate, people will absolutely spend the money to do the diligence. Yes. So now let's talk about uh, some of the ancillary costs that sophisticated buyers uh, will talk to you about. But, you know, a lot of people don't think about right how what additional costs are there when you buy a home in L.A. or when you buy a home in California compared to buying a home, say, in South Florida? Is there is it more expensive from an insurance perspective? I mean, obviously, taxes are going to be more. Uh, Talk to folks about some of the compare and contrast some of the additional expenses that people are going to have in a jurisdiction like, you know, L.A. or California compared to South Florida? Sure. So property tax-wise, your property taxes, in my opinion, are a little bit less here than California. Um, California typically has very high property taxes. It depends also if you're in an area that's also collecting an additional tax to support the local school district, because then there's an added tax in addition to, you know, the regular property taxes. And in Florida, if it's a condo market, your HOAs are significantly higher um, Mm. than HOAs in California. I mean, there's just no doubt, you know, here people that want to be in a high HOA building in California, they know that's what they're buying. They're going to get the valet parking. They're going to get the doorman. You know, they're going to get all of that. Some some of the stuff, you know, like in South Beach. And they're willing to pay for that. But just the really low-end, moderate condos even, I find, uh, in South Florida have a very high HOA. And you don't even really feel like you're getting a value for that. You know, what's the value draw? You're not having a doorman. You're not having valet parking. Yeah, you might have a pool, but it might be an older building and you're still paying, you know, six fifty and up. I think part of it is your regulations, which we all know since the Surfside collapse, everything has gone upside down and, and thankfully so, because now hopefully people will be much safer. But 
The fear is with the 20-year, 30-year, 40-year certifications, you're going to start to see a lot of assessments hitting. And unless somebody comes in and finances people for those assessments, I don't know how they're going to pay them. I mean, that's a concern. I wonder, hmm, is everybody going to just, you know, get foreclosed and walk away from their condo? How will they handle it? I feel like somebody's got to come in and save the day. But your insurance carriers in Florida, many of the carriers have pulled out, are pulling out. You know, you've got sort of the one game in town where the state of Florida is underwriting things now. And you're paying a premium for that, no doubt. Your auto insurance, your health insurance, and your home insurance, much, much higher in Florida. And I don't understand why. Yeah, that, well, what what ends up happening is you're right about the insurance, and that was, you know, that's always that's always going to be a challenge. And what what you'll find is I I made the mistake of, of volunteering to be on a condo board years ago when I when I was when I lived in a condo. And what you're what you'll find is that there's a huge amount of um, internal political resistance to reserves until a storm comes. The minute that – and the best thing that can happen is a storm just grazes the area and people get scared out of their wits, and then they agree to, to the vote to keep reserves so that in case the roof blows off or the elevator gets flooded, you know, you have some money in reserve to take care of it. Otherwise – Nobody is ever going to vote for reserves because in most of these buildings, half of the buildings in Florida are, you know, they're, they're snowbirds. They're people who are only here when there aren't storms. Mm-hmm. So the minute a storm comes through and you have major repairs and there's an assessment, people freak out. And you go to a bank and you finance the – depending on your building's history, you can finance the, the repairs out of the, you know, the future uh, homeowners association dues um, you know, because banks will, will definitely lend against that. But it's much better to have to go after a little amount and have something in reserve. It also shows the bank that you know how to manage a condo association and the bank is more likely to give you a favorable rate and it's going to be easier for you to end up getting that that financing in the long run. But the mentality, it's a, it's a very short uh, memory because we could go years and years without ever having a storm. Even we, we just, you know, as we're recording this, we're, we're four weeks away from uh, a disaster in, in the southwest of the state of Florida. But people in Miami, if you were taking a vote today, they wouldn't vote for, for reserves because they'd be like, well, it didn't hit here. So, you know, okay. they, they feel like, you know, they feel like God is smiling on Miami and it's never going to happen until it happens. So all of those, all of those contribute to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the high HR. Cost. In addition to that, there is no the, the insurer of last resort is the only insurer here. So whatever the the rates that are set by the by the state of Florida are, that's what they are, and you just deal with it. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's just one of those it's just one of those things. So Rhonda, let's talk now about um, about business development in real estate in particular, because we have we have a lot of people who work in real estate in various capacities who watch and listen to the show. Tell us about how you communicate to people and, and your value proposition in L.A. and your value proposition in Miami. Do you – when you talk to South Florida people, are you describing the way you pr- deliver your service differently than when you talk to L.A. people? How, how do you, you – know, how do you shift gears or do you shift gears or is it the same? People are really the same. It doesn't matter whether they're here in California or they're, you know, in Miami. Uh, I think people are people. 
And part of our job is to be their advocate. Part of our job is to be their therapist. Part of our job is to educate them and, you know, really listen to their needs in terms of, you know, if you're telling me you're in X price range and you want four bedrooms, I'm not going to show you that's something way above or below X price range that has one or two bedrooms because people tend to forget what they actually were looking for and they get caught up in the emotional piece of it. So I think if there's one thing I teach them or try to teach them is, you know, try to take the emotions out of it. Make yourself a list of these are the must-haves and these are the, oh, okay, maybe I'll concede to not having that in the house. Because I find that for the average buyer, and again, not necessarily for the very, very high end, but for the average buyer, you're, it's unlikely that you're going to get the house you want in the area you want for the price you need. Um, there's always, I feel like, something that's going to miss from the equation, whether it's, you know, a couple hundred square feet, whether it's a different school district. And so it's really important to make that list. But again, people are really just people. All right. So let's let's tell let's tell a couple of real estate stories now. Give us the what is the deal you're most proud of? Rhonda? Give us give us a give us a deal where you say, man, that's that's the one like if I could hang it up, that would be the one that I remember. What's your favorite deal of all time so far? Well, well, my favorite deal of all was my favorite because I pulled a rabbit out of a hat. Um, it's interesting. I, I work with a lot of attorneys that act as court-appointed receivers. And so what that means is that whether it's a bankruptcy situation or they've brought in um, an ABC, which is an assignee for the benefit of creditors, somebody who's wronged people, and that person, let's say, has a residential piece of property um, amongst their restaurant they need to sell or you know commercial property. If there's a residential component, I'll get brought in by the ABC, the assignee, or the receiver. So I was brought in on this case. It was a property actually out in the desert area. And the property had been purchased, had been flipped. They'd had, you know, one, two, maybe three different realtors that just couldn't get it sold in that particular market. So I come in on the listing. I bring in a partner who's local to that area, and she's the day-to-day showing agent. And it just seemed like, wow, this is going to be a really hard house to sell for, you know, a bunch of reasons overpriced, um, next to an area where you could actually smell horses and the horse, you know, poop as well. So, I mean, (laughs) it definitely had some challenges. I didn't feel like, um, and listen, hey, what do I know? I mean, now that house is well over a million, but at that time I thought, we're never getting a million dollars for this house. So we get a buyer, we finally get into escrow because we decide the smart play is to fire sale this house and just, you know, get it done. Let's get these people some money for you know, this situation. So we get it into escrow and then the assignee drops a real bomb. He says to me, oh, there's one thing I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to not move forward with this house. We can't get a title policy on the house. I said, oh, I think we can. We definitely can. So long story short, um, and many jumps through various hoops with my title company and the attorney and the president of a large title company, I pulled the rabbit out and got them to issue a title policy so this transaction can close. And this assignee is still a couple of, what, a year plus later, singing my praises because I think he himself is in total disbelief that we could ever close this transaction. Yeah. So that was very cool. 
What was the what was the issue? Why did he think that there was no you weren't going to be able to get a title policy? What was the defect? It there wasn't a defect, although that'll lead me to another story. Um, but there wasn't a defect in the property itself. What the issue was is that when the Assinee took over, the way in which they took over the property in name or as an Assinee, they could not get a title policy as an Assinee. So there are some nuances that occur when you bring in an assignee or a receiver. And because of, you know, I guess you don't know what you don't know until you're, you know, you step in it. That's what happened. And because he took it over and held title a particular way, nobody wanted to issue a title policy. Yeah. yeah. There wasn't okay. that chain of clear, you know. And what did you, so what was your, was your, did you have, you had a go-to person and you explained everything to the go-to person and they were like, oh, no problem. We can do that. Is that, that was your, that, that was, was that, was that your secret? Was you, you just knew what you could do and what you couldn't do and this person didn't know? Or was, was somebody able to make something happen that normally wouldn't happen? That's exactly right. It was really came down to my relationships with my title rep and my title rep's relationships with the president and attorneys for the title company. That's ah. that's really what it came down to was, do we want to issue this policy um, at a risk or not? And it, yeah. it's all about relationship. I feel like everything, you know, in this life comes back to relationships. All right. So now you you teased us with a, a story about a defect. Give us <laughs> give us the story about the defect. What's uh give give us I, I, I can't wait to hear this. What's the what's oh, this, what's the good story? Okay, so well I got a couple stories that are really right. fun. Um so this one is another receiver story. So a receiver called me in to list a property up in the hills in a neighborhood where I actually coincidentally had grown up in. And so I thought, oh, great, that would be a lot of fun. It turned out it was a couple that was going through sort of a, a nasty divorce. And so mm. the court brought in the receiver to get the property sold. At that particular time, the wife was still living in it. Um, a lot of, well, I'll get into the fun part of the story after, but a lot of the nuances of this property were that the husband decided to do a lot of the construction himself and oh, without boy. permits, and he did some crazy things. And so the city had filed several, um, how should we say, um, several items on the title report, citations that had gone unpaid. Like, for instance, he decided to bury the swimming pool, but didn't do it the proper way, didn't pull the permits for it. And so when and if a subsequent buyer would come in and they would want to have a swimming pool, they would have to undo everything he did, trench up all the dirt, put everything back together because he didn't break it down in the way that it would have been required by the city to get the permit for somebody else. So there were a number of nightmare citations against this property that had all been recorded on the title. So I knew going into it, oof, ma'am, this house is going to be a doozy. Mm -hmm. So the crazy story is this. So the receiver says, listen, go up to the house, take a look, tell me what you think. So I drive up to this house, and there's one thing that I've learned in my years of real estate, just things happen, you get locked into places, locked out of places, you've always got to have your cell phone. I may not always have my purse, but I'm not even going to the backyard without my cell phone, because God forbid, stuff happens, as they say. So I go up to this house, and he gives me the the code and it's an outside the garage keypad. So I hit the keypad and I think, well, you know, 
I don't know. I'm up in the hills. I'm alone. Do I want to leave the garage door open? Probably not. I don't know how long I'm going to take to go in and look through the home. Let me just hit the code again, get myself in the garage and shut the garage door. All right. So first mistake. So now I get into the garage. It's the heat of the summer. The garage door closes. And guess what? They did not leave the door into the house from the garage open for me as they were supposed to. Oh, no. Yes. And to add to it, there's no button to open the garage from the inside of the garage. It's located inside of the house. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I am now in the hills, trapped in a garage of a client I've never met. Thank God I had my cell phone. I wasn't even sure that I would get a cell signal up in the hills. And I'm pounding on the garage door as I hear people walking by with their dogs. And I'm yelling and I'm screaming and nobody hears me. And I think, this is it. I am going to die in this garage. <laughs> like It's getting hotter. Let me start looking around. Is there any water in this house? I don't know. Long story short, I get a signal on the phone. I call the receiver and I say, you're not going to believe this. I'm up at the house. I'm stuck in the garage. And he answers and says, you're not going to believe this. I don't even know how you got me on my phone because I'm on a cruise ship and I happen to be just off the boat on an excursion. Oh, my God. Let me see if I can call the owner, the wife, and see if she's in the neighborhood and can get you you out of the garage. Meanwhile, I call 911. The fire department is en route because I explained to them, listen, I haven't broken into this house. I haven't broken into the garage because that was really awkward. It's like, how do I even explain I'm in this person's garage to begin with? So they're en route. I hear the truck and I'm thinking, oh, God, they're going to have to hatchet this very expensive custom garage door to get me out of here. There's no other way. And just in that moment, uh, the seller pulls up. And saves the day, comes in through the house, opens it. But now the issue is, because I tried using the cable, the pulley myself, to get out of the garage, apparently I did something to dislodge it and make the problem worse. So now the the fire crew has to fix her garage door pulley from the inside. Oh my goodness. it was very embarrassing and very humiliating because this was my first meet with the seller. It's like, hello, I'm your very competent agent. So nice to meet you. And thank you for getting me out of your damn garage. What <laughs> so a great story. Was, so that was, yeah, that was, that was one story. And then that's I, great. I so it, there's yeah. now, but nowadays they have in the middle of the garage, there's like a little red thing that hangs down that you pull yeah. and it, it should immediately release the spring and you can lift the garage. They, I guess it didn't have it back then. They did. They had it and it did not because of the fact that I had done something to the oh, So you, so, so you, you actually made it worse. I made it worse. <laughs> yes. And because of that's what I exactly, did. So that's exactly what I would have done. I would have freaked out, screwed everything up, and I'd still be in the garage. Yes. 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 Yeah. And so because I did that, the fire department wasn't able to use the code from the outside to just put the code in and have the door open. It wouldn't open. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. You're lucky that person was in the neighborhood. All right. Give us give us one more. uh, And then I'm going to ask you for three things we should take away from our time together. Give us one more really good Rhonda real estate story. Okay. Another story. My son was younger at the time, and I slept him with me on one of my showings uh, for a condo, and it, it happened to be um, two physicians, a husband and wife, and I was actually, you know, 
hoping in my mind, you know, they, they didn't have anything, God forbid, that anybody could get into because just, you know, people are weird and you always got to watch when you're making a showing, even when there's a buyer's agent there, you just don't want people ever going through your seller's stuff. And so that, right. that was always a concern, like, you know, just keeping my eye on these people. So I'm doing a show and it's myself, my son's sitting in the living room and it's not a big place. And the buyer's there and the buyer's agent's there. And I must have stepped away for about two minutes to go into another room to see, you know, what was going on, how the tour was going in that room. And all of a sudden, my son comes running over and he's like, Mom, Mom. I'm like, what? And he's pointing. Well, it turns out that in those just a few brief seconds, honest to God, the buyer had decided that since he had a toothache, that it was okay for him to go into the seller's bar and start drinking their liquor. So this buyer is now standing there drinking their liquor. And my fear was, right, who does that is right. And with their agent there and with me, the listing agent there. And in like a nanosecond, it occurred. And all I could think about was, holy crap, my sellers are going to come home and think I'm having a party in their house. This man's going to be holding their bar glass drinking hard liquor. Yeah. So, I mean, did you, did you approach him? Did his, did his agent approach him? Like his agent must've been freaking out. The agent must've been like, what are you doing? No, he did not. He thought it was perfectly normal. Had no issue with it whatsoever. Never approached him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I was sort of left holding the bag. Did did that guy end up buying the house and did you tack on another $18 for the drink? (laughs) (laughs) He did not end up buying the house. (laughs) But I was more worried about how is this going to impact my relationship with the sellers, which fortunately it did not. But I mean, we still giggle over it. But at the time, oh, it was. Yeah, but I mean, Rhonda, let's be real. Who's going to hold you accountable for some nothing? Knucklehead busting in the liquor cabinet and throwing back a shot. I mean, that's not your fault. There's nothing you could do about that. It, people are people. If they if they're gonna do something crazy, they're gonna do something crazy. Is that is that like the silliest thing that's ever happened to you in a showing? What's the what's the silliest thing that's ever happened in a showing? Aside from getting locked in the garage and and somebody somebody you know throwing back a couple of shots in your in your client's house, is is that the craziest thing that you you've ever had happen in a showing? Yeah, I mean, I've. Uh... There was one other quick story, yeah, that happened at a showing. It was on a lockbox, and it was a celebrity client. She'll remain unnamed, and it was the first time I was actually taking her out, and I was taking her out with her mother, and I called and set up the showing. The property was vacant on lockbox, and I looked through the window, and I thought, well, the floors look really shiny. That's really nice. Okay, great. Can't wait to go in. Well, little did I know that they had just varnished the floors, the hardwood floors. There was no sign. Isn't that, that's got to be in the, but that's got to be in the showing notes or something, doesn't it? Oh man. Yeah, it was not. So I step in, in my finest suit, my finest shoes, the handbag, the whole nine yards and whoop, slide flat on my back across the hardwood floor. (laughs) And so I'm laying there on all fours and I'm literally stuck because the varnish is, you know, just this sucky, gluey. Um, And all I could think was, oh, please don't let the client or her mom follow me in the house and fall down with me. Um, But I I somehow managed to just dust myself right off, Dave. And off we went to see five, six more houses after that. (laughs) 
so let me actually that that's a that's an interesting point. So there's a school of thought, right? That you never take a client to see more than what like three houses because they get overwhelmed and it's too many choices. So you just said like five or six houses, and I'm assuming because it's a high profile client, they don't have a lot of time. So you want to make sure you give them everything you got because you, you may only get one shot with them, right? What like how do you manage that? Like the, you know, doing the whole compare and contrast thing when people have too many choices. Like, how do you make sure mm -hmm. that you keep your client focused on what's important? Well, that day was a time in real estate where we had a lot more inventory to work with. And so it was very typical to take a buyer out, no matter who they were, on a Saturday or a Sunday and spend, you know, most of, if not the whole day, going to look at properties. I mean, if somebody's willing to look at multiple properties and they take really good notes or they take photographs, if that's permitted, you know, it's manageable. But nowadays with such little inventory, I mean, you're just pouncing on one single property when it hits the market because you've seen everything else. So you're spending, you know, much less time. You're, you're having more frequency of showings, but not in the same day with buyers now these days are you still having to do like dear buyer letters and in, in our deals dear seller letters in competitive situations where your your client is like making the case to the seller pick me instead of everybody else or has the market softened to the point where you don't have to do that anymore it's interesting because i've never had a buyer do the the dear seller letter i've actually had them do a dear seller video you know, hey, oh, look at tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So talk about um, that. And I kept it kind of a secret because I didn't really want other real estate agents. But now the cat's out of the bag, sort of using my strategy to, you know, get their client in front yeah, of the seller. Yeah, but they won't do it as good as you. So don't worry well, about that. there you go. <laughs> but thank you. But so it's not me. It's the client. Do, yeah. And how do you, Rhonda, how do you keep it from being like a hostage video? Like, dear seller, <laughs> I would love your house. Look at my beautiful child. Can you imagine him playing in the backyard? Like, how do you make, like, how do you make sure it's like natural? And like, tell me how you coach your clients up when they're going to do one of these. You know, I've had a handful of clients that are just not comfortable with it. And they just don't show well on video in their opinion so they just don't want to do it but those that do it's very sort of a short and sweet it's you know hi we're so and so and so and so or hi i'm so and so if it's a single person um this is what i do for work this is about me where i come from you know i have a dog named whatever uh you know sugar uh here's where I live. And this is what I really love about your house. So, you know, apples to apples, please pick me. Um, you know, if this is going to separate me out from the pack, it, it's really along those lines. I tell them, keep it short and sweet and just speak from the heart. If you've toured their home and you've noticed something, maybe they went to the same university as you. Maybe you saw a picture in their property of someone they know that you might also know. I mean, any little thing you can connect with them on a more personal, deeper level, use that in your letter as a touch. The challenge now is that in California in particular, hasn't hit so much in Florida, but in California, there's now a clause in the listing agreement to the seller whereby we have to advise the seller that they have to tell us in the listing up front if they want buyer letters or not. And we as agents mm. are supposed to advise them not to take buyer letters because we could be discriminating on race, on religion, on color, on so many different fronts. 
Um, because they will say, you know, for instance, um, I had a transaction where I had a seller and they wanted to know everything about every offer and buyer that came in. And a lot of those things were out of the scope of what I'm really supposed to talk about. I mean, I can present their qualifications. They've got this lender, you know, they're pre-approved, blah, blah, blah. You know, they wanted to know, were they single? Are they married? You know, tell me about them. Do they have kids? Because they themselves were going to try to start a family. Um, and those are the things that can, you can get you into trouble because, they got an offer from an investor and they didn't want an offer from an investor. So they ended up taking an offer from a young family, um, you know, a young couple that was trying to start a family, as I said. And the agent of the buyer that had the investor wanted to know who they chose because she was going to make a complaint that it was discrimination. Wow. So it's very interesting and you've got to be so, so careful. So now... I'm having clients keep those videos much more generic in nature mm. um, without really talking personal pieces. Yeah. So that, that kind of eliminates like my secret weapon. I haven't, I haven't invested in real estate in a, in a, in a very long time uh, since, since I had kids, basically the kids sucked up any money that would go into <laughs> real estate. Right. But um, w one of my secret weapons was to go with the agent and insist that we present the offer together in person. Mm -hmm. Because I sell stuff for a living. That's what I do. Yeah. So I want to be there when the offer is presented because I want to take a shot. Like, it, you know, if the offer is lower than what the people expected, I want to explain to them why it makes sense for them to accept my offer. Yeah. If the offer is what they expected, but there's a competitive situation, I want to make my case that I'm the person that you should uh, that you should sell this home to. I guess, given what you just said, that's probably off the table now, right? You can't bring, can you bring the buyer to the seller to meet in person? You can, but a lot of agents are really insecure about putting a buyer and seller in the same room. I don't know why, because I found that you can work miracles often by doing so. But a lot of agents are not comfortable in that setting, and so they won't encourage uh, a buyer's agent and their client to meet with the seller at the table. I mean, to me, it there's no going back and yet. forth. See, here's the thing: there's no going back and forth, right? So okay. if you set up a meeting, and I, I've had, I had an agent who told me something similar to that. I'm like, look. We'll do it in your office. We'll sit across a conference table from each other. It's not going to be – it's not going to be – it's going to be very – it's going to be the greatest experience you ever had because – you'll know when we walk out of the room whether we have a deal or not. There's not going to be any back and forth. If we're in the room an hour, it's going to be a long time because if I can't make a deal with this person in an hour, I'm going to go find something else. So, you know, I was able to convince that agent. We, we waited in their office. They, the, the seller was happy to come right over. It, you know, I've never had a seller say, I don't want to meet that person in, in person. The seller is always like, yeah, I'll meet him in person because they know we're yeah. either going to get the deal done or we're not and we're going to figure it out right now That's and right. to me that was always the secret weapon because the person who's sitting in front of you ready to make a deal is always going to have an advantage who there's money literally on the table right it's just it's a great way to do business and if it was a business negotiation we'd be face to face if we could be so for me that was always like when when i first got together with my wife and we and we bought our first property she's like you're really going to meet these people i'm like of course <laughs> like why why aren't we why would we hesitate she's like i don't know she's like what if they're axe murderers i'm like well if they're axe murderers we're buying their house and there's going to be bodies in the basement wouldn't you want to know that <laughs> so yeah 
it's uh, and for me that was always and I'm sure for you too that's always like part of the fun part of the excitement is the deal it's like making the deal happen is probably the best part of the whole thing like I got to live in this house for 30 years okay fine but making the deal was the best part so for the next 15 of the 30 years I'll be living off of the thrill of making the deal and then the second half of the of, of the of the mortgage period it'll be all right I'll get through it right I I love that that was always like my that was always my favorite part and whenever I told any of my like my friends that I did that I always got like oh I don't know if I could do that why not I never yeah. understood why you wouldn't want to why you wouldn't want to do that also and I'm interested in your opinion on this like HOAs, like here in Miami, getting an exception to an HOA rule and getting it in writing, one of the things that I did, and I'm not going to say what building it was, and I'm not going to say what exception we needed, but I had the condo president, and I had the seller and us all in the same room, and I said, look, it's gonna, you're going to have a hard time getting anybody to agree to this. Here's the exception that I want, and here's the reason I want it, and here's how we're going to use that exception. And I've had my attorney put that all in writing. I have cash. I'm ready to close right now. This guy wants to sell this place. He doesn't want you to hold it up. How are we going to make this happen? And you know, it puts a lot of pressure on the president of the, of the condo association because you're all sitting right there. Yeah. And, you know, it was and, you know, I've done it with uh, with where the association assigns parking spots and I wanted a better parking spot. You know, in this particular case, there was a, there was an issue for us. I, I mean, I can disclose it now. It's 15 years ago. There was an issue for us with we weren't sure if we were going to actually keep the place for us or if we were going to use it as a rental Mm -hmm. and if we were going to use it as a rental the the association rules said you could only turn it one time a year meaning basically you can only rent it to one person right right. i wanted an extra turn in the rental so that if i wanted to rent it just for the winter and i wanted somebody else in it for the summer or if i wanted to move into it in the summer i could move back into it in the summer and, and what we did was we had them carve out that exception that we could turn it one time and then live in it ourselves. So I could actually put two people in it and then come back and live in it myself. And I got the guy to sign off on it right there in the room and that because that was the only way I was going to end up buying the property. And, you know, they were hesitant at first, but when I explained, I don't want a second turn. I want the second turn for me to move in. The guy was like, okay, fine. Doing that face-to-face, it would have been letters from lawyers back and forth over four weeks. Somebody else would have taken the place from out, out from under us. The seller wouldn't have been happy. He would have held on to the property an extra month. It just was easier to do it face-to-face. It's just so much easier. Now, before I let you give us the three things, which I, I think I mentioned like a half hour ago, and we've been going on and on, before the three things, how do you how do you manage the lifestyle of going back and forth? Are you are, do you split your time evenly between South Florida and LA, or do you just go to South Florida when you have a deal, or vice versa? How do you manage that lifestyle? Well, remember, I've been in real estate much longer in California than I have in Miami at this point, so I'm still really building and building and building a business in Miami, <clears throat> and I feel like. In continuing to build in the way in which I want to, I need to spend more time there. There's no doubt. My challenge is in, you know, how do I continue to support and be present for my clients that I've been with for many years in California? Um, So 
I don't really have a system per se at this point. It is really kind of about what transactions I have in the pipeline, what I know that I've got coming up, who can I get to help me in servicing it. Um, Believe it or not, I've got help in Miami, but not as much here in California. And Mm. a lot of times people want to work with me, you know? Um, And even though I say to them, listen, I don't ever want to be the reason you don't get into a door of a property. You know, I have wonderful people that can show it to you and I'm still going to be your point person and your negotiator and your cheerleader and, you know, helping you with your offer and all of those things. Sometimes people just want me. And it's a great feeling, but it is absolutely a challenge to be in two places uh, at one time, you know, such as the case for, for next week, as I mentioned before we started that, you know, I had to push back the trip because of activity going on in California. Um, sure. And so what that meant for me in Florida was that everything that was on calendar had to then get moved around. So um, I always want to be in alignment with what's the best move for my buyer or my seller because it's not about me it's about how can i service them what what does that look like and who do i need to bring in to make sure that that happens if i'm on a different coast got it all right so now as promised please take a minute and think about three things that our viewers that our listeners should take away from our time together and while you're doing that i want to remind people that if you want to reach out to rhonda cohen whether you're in miami or anywhere in south florida or you want to reach out to her in la here's the number to call 800-825-0102 800-825-0102 i'm also going to put her website down in the show notes but it's really easy it's rhondacohen.com so r-h-o-n D-A-K-O-H-N.com. That's going to be down in the show notes as well. I'm also going to put her email address in there so you can send her your emails and send her all your real estate horror stories. I'm sure she'll love reading them. Um, in the meantime, while Rhonda's thinking of the three things that she's going to share with us, I got to remind you too that we're brought to you by my Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you're looking for a way to grow your professional service business, you want to grow your client base, and you want to use relationships to do it, I've got the exact guide for you. Here's what you need to do. Go to this website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Put all those words together, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there, and you can download your guide to business development for professional services firms. There's no tricks. There's no gimmicks. It's relationships. And I have the exact guide that I use with my clients. I'm giving giving it to you for free. You can take it right now and use it. RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. It's my gift to you for listening, for watching the show. Again, Rhonda Cohn's my guest today. If you want to reach out to her, 800-825-0102, 800-825-0102, or RhondaCohn.com. It's R-H-O-N-D-A-K-O-H-N.com. All right, Rhonda, what are the three things we should take away from our time together? All right. So that's an easy one. Compare real estate now to the Dow Jones. Real estate is still always going to be your best investment. Number two, for me, always, I always put people over profits. No deal is too small. No deal is too big. I work the low-end condos all the way up to the celebrity Lucille Ball estate. Um, No deal too small. No deal. But again, relationships and people over profits. You've got to take the emotion out of real estate. Whether you're a buyer or a seller, this is not about you. You've got to take the emotion out of the picture um, because you can't make level-headed decisions as a buyer or a seller if you have that emotional piece. Third, well, probably fifth, but we'll call it third. Um, I would say one thing people, some people might not know about me is that I am a three-time cancer survivor. 
And because of that... Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. See? Um, I don't shout it from, you know, (laughs) from the balcony. But um, it is special to me in a way only because... I live life very differently. Um, I spend my days and nights very, very differently. I live with tremendous gratitude, really just simply to be alive. And real estate has allowed me to find a way to give back to others. I have such a gratitude that I wanted to find a way to give back. And so through real estate, I found a way to be able to give back and help other people realize their dreams of home ownership. So I would say that's kind of the one thing about me that's unique. Wow. Well, I am certainly glad that you've spent this time with us. You are so much fun to talk to. I could have, we could do another interview on that and how you live your life because I would, I would love to talk to you about that. For right now, I hope everybody reaches out to you. If you are in Miami, if you're in LA, if you want to talk real estate, give Rhonda a call. Her number again is 800-825-0102, 800-825-0102. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. It was so much fun. We're going to do this again because we've got a lot more to talk about. So thanks again for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Dave. And do I have a quick second to ask you a question? I just want you to be able to tell all your viewers how you became the godfather of growth and what people need to know about (laughs) how they can reach you and how much you can help them. Oh, well, thank you. You're very kind. If anybody wants more information from me, they can go to revenueroadmapguide.com and enter their contact info, download the free guide to growing their business. You know, I became the godfather of growth. I do what I do. Uh... Because I learned a long time ago that the easiest way to attract people is to is to give as much as you possibly can. I mean, Rhonda, you know this because I've seen you in action. You give a lot. If you give to other people, people are going to seek you out. They're going to find you. So anybody who's watching this or who's listening to this, your contact info is directly below this. And then down below your bio is my contact info. If anybody wants to reach out to me, my info is right there. They can get a hold of me. I thank you for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. It was great to have you here. Folks, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I'm Dave Lorenzo. Until tomorrow, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.